This show was first broadcast on Free FM 89.0, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access radio station. For more information on our station and our wide range of programs, visit freefm.org.nz. I knew from the age of 13 that I was going to be either a, a musician or an actor. I knew I was going to be in the en- entertainment industry anyway, and um, it tended to uh, lead towards music, influenced by the kind of music what I was listening to at the time, which was a mix really. At first, it, you know, we started off with the Calypso, what our parents, you know, brought over with them from the Caribbean. Then we started hearing reggae and Rasta music, which is very cultural and very rootsy and educational in its own way, teaching us about black history and stuff like that. Um, And then I got introduced to punk. I was like, wow, what's this? This is great. You know, this is, you know, different. And, And the reggae merging with punk music happened to come together, I think, because Around that time, around 77, 78, there were lots of Rock Against Racism concerts. And in Digba Civic Hall, basically all the punk bands, the reggae bands used to play there, that was the local gig. And they always started off with a punk band and ended up with a reggae band kind of thing. They had a few of those and they got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and better and better. People like Steel Pulse, UB40. My band, I was in a punk band called the Dum Dum Boys. We, We did a couple of Rock Against Racism gigs. The first gig we ever did headlining was where I met up with the beat because because they called us up and said they wanted to open up for us. And we says, yeah, come to our rehearsals, play some tunes. And when I first met them, to me, I thought they were all aliens. They all, there was something weird about all of them. which And I thought, you know, it was, but there was something magical about it as well. You know, once all the the, the instruments played together, the jam started and what the beat were were a jam a jam with an organised jam if you like and really good at it you know they came and played some tunes and we thought whoa that sounds really good if you're any good you know we said you can open up for us and they were really good so we had to let them open up for us and blow us off stage but you know that it was inevitable then that was I was destined to be in that band you know we were playing in front of a punk crowd and the beat were opening up for my band, the Dum Dum Boys, and I got pushed onto the stage <laughs> by my punk mates, and that was so I had to grab the mic and do my first eight or sixteen bars, and um, you know that that was the start of it. Then I got to know the guys, we got really friendly with each other. The fans just slapped onto it, and so did the band. You know they loved having me around. I was a 
because I was cheeky, I was still 16, you know, just left school, um, naive, you know. Everywhere the beat played, from the beginning, we, we went down really well, so we knew we were good, and so that was one thing. But when we went on tour with the selector for the first time, that was the real test, because now you, you're, on, you're up against a band, you're opening up for a band who've got a tune that's top 10 in the charts at the moment, and they're going around the country, and you're their opening act, and it's the, it's the first time you're gonna get to the masses. Then at the end of that, we got the two-tone deal. So, it, you know, all these things happened so quickly and over, you know, within eight months of me joining the band, I was on top of the pops. And that is, I know it takes years to, to, to get to that stage, you know, it takes years and years and I was lucky. I just happened to be mixing the right, in, with the right people and be in the right place at the right time. And luckily, you know, this music is my legacy, you know, I live it, you know, that, that's, beat sound is just, it's got a life of its own, a life force of its own.
and dead. We've always promised ourselves, and I, I hope all the ex-members of the band who are in different bands think the same way. You know, treat it like, you know, your first gig ever and your last gig ever. You know, you go in and you give it everything. And we went out and gave it everything, you know. And um, at the end of that tour, the specials came up to us and offered us a two-tone deal. And that's when I started saying, all right, you need to hold, hold yourself down now, boy. <laughs> Don't get too excited, you know. You're not a pop star yet or anything, but look, you're gonna be the next two-tone single and look what's happened to the last four or the last three. They've all gone into the charts, you know, so obviously ours went into the charts very quick. And um, for that Christmas, you know, I was just like, what's happened? <laughs> you know, um, and I never looked back. I tried not to look back, you know, because if you were to look back, I think your head would have been in the clouds. So you just carry on and you work as hard as you can and you try and be truthful and we felt like we were more people's band. We weren't a Duran Duran. We were out there in big pop star land, living in big mansions and stuff. And that wasn't us, you know, it wasn't our way. Um, and I'm glad it didn't go that way because in hindsight, if the beat didn't split up in 1984, then I think we would have gone on to have been as big as UB40 or U2 or any of them other bands who stayed around and became massive. We would have been one of them and we would have been millionaires. It wasn't about that, it was about having fun and I wanted to see the world and stuff, but I didn't think that I'd see as much as I did see with the beat. You know, I thought, yeah, we'd probably go up and down the country and maybe go to France and that's it, but we went all around the world, you know, so. Uh, job well done and totally unexpected and I still give to this day a lot of gratitude for it you know so I'm very thankful that it did go that way yeah She's mine, and she's mine. You're a wonderful person. I 
Hey there, this is Dave Wakeling of the English Beat. Who needs to think when your feet just go, feet, go? Go, feet, go, feet, go, feet, go. Go, feet, radio. Take us back to, to, to I guess, how punk influenced your music because I, I, I take a listen to the, the Beats uh, songs now and, of course, the English Beats songs now and, uh, you know, I can hear... Uh, so many elements of, of different genres of music uh, in there and uh, I, I remember hearing you say something about going to a punky reggae party um, punk well, DJ, reggae Bible, DJ yeah. tell us about that there was, um, there was uh, a movement towards the end of punk called the punky reggae party in fact Bob Marley wrote a song about it called that didn't they so yeah the punky reggae party uh, Harry up from the slits and Don Letts, that was eventually in Big Audio Dynamite, the filmmaker, uh, they ran a disco called the Punky Reggae Party. Uh, and at that time, uh, punks and rasters were both banned equally from pubs, you know. So there was a, a sort of association by being outcasts, I think. And you, you would quite often on punk festival shows get a reggae band in there almost as though it was like the chill-out room in a rave, you know? The chance to get your breath back. And so uh, we ran house parties in Birmingham with a couple of DJs uh, playing, uh, one playing neon punk singles and one playing reggae dub slates. Cool. And uh, we found if we played all punk songs that the dance floor would go crazy for about an hour. And then everybody would have to go and lie down. And if you played all dub slates for an hour, everybody ended up leaning against the wall, nodding, cause dancing on the inside, which is the coolest. <laughs> and uh, but if you mixed it up, one of this, one of that, two of this, two of the other, one of this, one of that, the dance floor would stay packed all night. And uh, the two different types of music seemed to really help each other and help the crowd. And you just get this. You get the sensuous, sort of sexy nature of the reggae songs, and then you get the adrenaline and the excitement of the punk songs. And uh, we didn't know at the time, but it was quite a quite a celebrated audience that we had. Sometimes Boy George used to come wow. with his boyfriend Martin Degville from Zig Zig Sputnik, and uh, some of UB40 used to be there. Even a couple of Dex's Midnight Runners, but they were never allowed to tell Kevin Rowland else they'd have been in trouble. <laughs> and uh, but everybody used to say, "Well, it's just the it's just the best party. This is the best parties we ever go to." And uh, Andy, the other guitarist out the beat, the one night said to me, "Well, what if you could get the same the, the elements of the both DJs into the same three-minute pop song? What would you have then?" And really, a, a light bulb went off above our heads. It was like, whoa! And that was really how the beat started. That was the that was the idea. Wow. And then we wanted to mix in our other favourite influences, which was Tamla Motown and the uh, '60s pop uh, that had been carried on that a beautiful tradition carried on by the Buzzcocks and the Undertones, where you. You have a song just under three minutes and as it's fading out, you're listening to it and you're still singing it and you want to hear it again. That sort of perfect pop. And uh, so we wanted to just mix up all of our influences like that and uh, 
try and create a really inclusive uh, musical groove that had a happy and uplifting feel to it and to be able to balance that off by singing about some of the more tragic and shitty things that were happening uh, all around us at the time, you know. We didn't feel like we were singing about anything out of the ordinary, really. It was only what everybody in every pub and at every bus stop was talking about. But for some reason, sticking that in a pop song seemed like sort of revolutionary or somehow. I never really got it, to be honest. I thought, if you could bring out 12 songs on an LP and not mention anything that was going on around you, I, I thought that was a far more overtly political statement to make than just singing about what everybody was talking about. We, I think, were lucky coming off the tail end of punk because they'd sort of blown up all the buildings and in the dust that was in the air, you could get away with a great deal. And uh, under cover of that, uh, we managed to do our stuff and uh, nobody thought much of it. Nobody thought much of having people of different colours in the band and nobody initially thought much of just singing about social and political stuff that was going on in Birmingham. It wasn't really till the first time we went to London that uh, a load of skinheads were like, oh, I like that. Like black geese and white geese on stage together. Yeah, I like that. I'll have mm. some of that. And we were like, oh, well, okay, well, so long as you like it, then we'll pretend we did it on purpose. But uh, <laughs> that hadn't really been any big deal in Birmingham. Nobody, nobody had bothered to mention it in the first three months of gigs in Birmingham, but there was people with different colours in the band. We might have been a bit lucky there coming from Birmingham. Uh, it's an industrial city, a bit like Detroit, where the, all the cars were made, a lot of factories, and a lot of people and lots of different colours had worked on factory lines for ages, and that tends to knock out some of the prejudice as you, you start to realise you've got much more in common with each other than yeah. any of the differences you might have read about in the newspaper. Mm. And so, uh, really, because of it, the industrialised nature of Birmingham, I think, uh, we ended up doing something that probably wouldn't have been possible in uh, a lot of other parts of England at the time, particularly in London at the time, where society... Uh, ethnicities in society kept uh, a, a bit of a further distance from each other.
I see no joy, I see only sorrow. I see no chance for your bright new tomorrow. So stand up, Mark, stand up, please stand up. I'm Daniel Rachel and I'm here with Rankin Roger of The Beat in his home with his cats uh, here to promote and talk about the uh, Beat's second uh, album of recent times, Public Confidential, which is neatly acting as a disguise for the notes and questions that, and areas we're going to be talking about. Uh, how, how did the process of the album come about? Yeah. Like, where, where's the, when, what's the starting point? It was written the same way as the last one was, which was a combination of me and Mick Lister. And uh, we got together, wrote a couple of songs out of the blue and just got them sounding beatish, which, hmm. is, which is what I've always wanted. You know, so beat tunes should sound beatish. And, and they really do across the album. And oh, yeah. I mean, mix written, co-written half a dozen of the tracks with you. Yeah. 
Um, and particularly the track, Who's That Looking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm not that familiar with the record. That's yet, right, no, that's yeah. fine. That's... But that track itself, Yes. Uh, if Beat fans were trying to, uh, were hoping that, yes. there's, that there's the sound of the beat from 1979, 1980, yep. here it is in this track, because the echoes of Mirror in the Bathroom are particularly strong. Oh, they um, reek of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, as I mean, you know, it, it, you can hear a lot of the Mirror in the Bathroom influence within the album, and the other songs sound like the first album as well, because that's the place I wanted to take it, you know. Like, uh, and what what makes you want to go back to the first album, Sounds of the Beat, say, as opposed to Wappen or Special Beat oh, Service? It, it, wow! <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a fact that the first album, I Just Can't Stop It, was a classic. And, you know, it's the best album I think we've ever wrote. And obviously that was because, you know, that was the first tunes we had. But the, the, the vibe of the beat when it first started is what appeals to me, you know, not the second or the third album necessarily. Yes. You know, um, but a combination of the whole thing I loved, you know, and obviously I, I, I live we do a couple of tracks, you know, from the first album, well, from the second album and the third album, but it's predominantly the first album we do. And there's a fantastic ad lib in, in that track where uh, you, when you introduce the saxophone. Yes. Do you want to tell us about it? <laughs> Well, they just say, um, I, I guess I say, saxophone, come in and blow the place down. <laughs> I mean, I just sound, almost sound like a terrorist, you know what I mean? But uh, it's, you know, it's obviously, the, these were ad-libs, what I, you know, I had many of them. You mentioned the, the Mick uh, as your co-songwriter on half a dozen of the tracks. Yeah. How, how does that process work between the two of you? I mean, can, can, we, can we imagine that Mick writes the music and you write the words or is it more collaborative i mean where well, how does it what the genesis of a song it's uh, like is there a pattern uh, last last time we met up to do these you know do this album you know i met him in in the city center and he walked out the station and it was the first day of sunshine he went it's a nice day for sunshine and that was that was it you know, we we had the first tune for the album that oh. we were gonna. We didn't have any, any ideas which other tunes were gonna be on it. What we were gonna be writing. That's the first thing we got working on huh. when we got together this second time. And first time I heard that track, it reminded me of all those times I used to hear the beat on Radio One in concert doing the summer <laughs> yeah. parties. Yes. It's got that exuberant summer feeling, oh, hasn't yeah. it? It's got a best friend kind of feel about it. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's great. That's you know, any any tune that sounds like the beat and has that sound is going to be on that album. There's a great family connection that runs through Public Confidential, uh, particularly in the track Skankaway. Yeah, there so, is. Tell yeah. us about who's on that, who wrote it, who produced it. Yeah, um, well, I produced this obviously, um, and uh, Murphy or Rankin Junior as most people know him. He kind of wrote the lyrics. And... Which is your, your son? Yes, that's right, yes. Him and his sister are both on it, his sister Saffron, and uh, they do a wonderful job, you know, and it's just kind of getting some family feature in there, you know, not for the sake of it, but because it sounds good, you know. And it, was it, were there any moments in the recording with Dad as producer where it becomes Dad as opposed to Rankin Roger? And it... Not with Junior, it doesn't. Right. I think... Saffron was a bit more nervous 
when she was doing her part. Um, but Junior's so used to me, you know, we, we're more like mates and, you know, I'm his old man, you know. It's a lot like mates, so... But let's talk, let's talk about the track Dangerous. Yes. Uh, which is one that you wrote on your own. Yeah. And within that, perhaps you'll tell me the line directly, but you talk about uh, flashing a knife, don't you? Yes. Do you want to tell us the lyric of um, You think you is a bad man when you flash for your knife, right? Next thing me now, you take another man life. And, right. and it has incredible pertinence, this lyric, because we're living in a period at the moment where knife crime is incredibly on, on the up. That's and right. And you're focusing right in on, on that problem. Is it, what's, what's your, what led to the writing? It's not my work? experience of knives. It's the experience of, of, you know, changing people from being bad people to good people, mm. you know, and that's why I say... Them the boys said them dangerous, artificial and dangerous, hmm. you know, and then walking down the road with the gun in your waist. Next thing you know, you want to shoot up the place. Well, them the boys dangerous, you know what I mean? So I'm showing people, you know, and then the next verse I go into, I'm a rebel, but I am is a rebel. You know what I mean? It's like you're showing people like you, you, you're rebellious, but you, it doesn't mean you have to be violent with this. Yes. You know? And you can do it in a unified, a proper way, you know, in a people way. This track, this album, also marks 40 years right. since The Beat released their first single on two-tone. Yeah. And obviously The Beat were hugely socially and politically conscious, mm -hmm. uh, talking about the, the, the times and the troubled times of Birmingham in the late 70s, early 80s. And here we are again, uh -huh. 40 years later, and you're talking about not dissimilar situations. Maybe it's all I know. But to tell the truth, it, you know, a lot of the things I, I do know comes with life, you know, and yeah. I write while I see in life, you know, so it's, it, it means that after 40 years, it's still the same. Nothing hasn't changed. There's probably new things in new places, but it's still the same kind of mentality. Yeah. The lead track on the new album is called Maniac, which uh, received a lot of radio play, uh -huh. it really jumps out on, on, on the on radios. Uh, what, what, who are you directing that song at? Who well, is the maniac? What is the maniac? Teresa Maniac. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it could be. It's, it's to all world leaders, but, you know, it, it's like really a Trump it's based, it's based on, you know, because he spoke of his walls of Jericho, which... Obviously, it's the wall of Mexico, which he wants to pull up. And so, so it's in tune with the times. It's like, you know, don't tell me what to do, you know. Don't tell me what to do with my life. Everyone should live their own life, you know, as long as they're doing it in a peaceful manner. OK, and so very finally, if, if you were going to put me on the spot, yeah. if, if, if somebody was going to come to this record, to yeah. your band for the first time, What's the track you'd say? You've Who's got that looking? To put that one on. Who's that looking? Yeah, you know, because that one really moves like a bullet to me. And like once the chorus comes in, or the second chorus, it just rocks the place. Like I mean, I can just imagine that on stage. You know, it's just, it, it'd be chaos. It'd be game over. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Roger. <laughs>
Meanwhile, tributes have been paid to Rankin Roger, an icon of two-tone music in Birmingham who's died at the age of 56. Roger Charlery grew up in Small Heath and found fame as a vocalist in the band The Beat. Well, he performed on stage regularly and his last tour was 44 shows around Europe in 2017. Callum Watkinson reports. The beat burst out of Birmingham in the late 1970s with a string of top 40 hits. Their music was a mix of ska and punk. Their manpower was a blend of black and white. Their message was one of unity and joy. Their drummer Everett Morton told me today that without Roger Charlery, there would have been no beat, but the band's best-known face started out as a fan. Roger used to be in the audience and he would just get up on stage, yeah, if you couldn't keep him away, and he keep coming up on stage and look until he was in the band, yeah. He just reeled himself in the band, and it's like, you know, he was an asset to the band, so we just we kept him. All three guys was just, they was punk musicians and they was just thrashing the rhythm out and I was just steadying the rhythm and then he had something else to do it with his rapping. The Beat's success was relatively short-lived. They broke up in 1983. Their influence though outlived them. Ranking Roger as he was by then known followed up with a successful solo career and collaborations with everyone from The Clash to The Police to Pato Banton. The specials led the drumbeat of online tributes today. You're going to be missed. You're like my brother, big boy. You were like brothers and I'm glad this last couple of weeks, Roger, we spent time with you and your lovely family and um, we'll make sure your memory lives on. Thanks for the music. I love you. Love you. Coventry music producer Roger Loma said Roger was great fun to be around, a true gentleman, a true professional, and a fantastic role model for up and coming musicians. For this former bandmate, though, the gift Roger gave was much more precious. Roger teach me to smile. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned how to smile from Roger. And that's something I always remember. Yeah, I mean, like I'm walking down the street and I see people, I smile and want to know what's the matter with him. 
in a way it's small in that people it's that's it teach me to do that music fans across the midlands and beyond can probably relate to that callum watkinson itv news Number one station, your station from creation. For more episodes of this community access radio show, please visit freefm.org.nz. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast possible by funding the Access Internet Radio Project.